everybody. Um, this marks the third anniversary of the Clinical Neuroscience Society, uh, and it's the third year we have um, a fantastic lecture like uh, Chris's one today. And just for those of you who are new to the department, the Clinical Neuroscience Society promotes educational, developmental, and social events within the Department of the National <coughs> Department of Clinical Neurosciences. So it's a great pleasure today to be introducing Professor Chris Kennard. Let me just give you a very brief um, idea of where, where Chris came from. So he was a medical student at the University of London, where he obtained his PhD at the MRC National Institute of Medical Research in London. And after training post in neurology in London and in Oxford, he was appointed as a consultant neurologist at the Royal London Hospital, and subsequently he moved at Imperial College um, uh, where he was a professor of clinical neurology. At Imperial, he was the head of um, the Division of Clinical Neurosciences and Psychological Medicine, and subsequently he became the deputy principal of the Faculty of Medicine. In 2008, he moved um, here in Oxford, where he took his position as a professor of clinical neurology, and then subsequently the senior Curti fellow of Brasenose College here in Oxford. In 2010, he became the head of the department here, which he retired from it about a month ago. He's also a delegate of the Oxford um, University Press. And uh, his research group has, um, Chris has a, a range of, of things that his research group has looked at. And he's looked into cognitive neurosciences, visual sciences, particularly using the analysis of abnormalities of visual perception and eye movement in human neurological disease to further understand brain function. So it is a great pleasure today to be having Chris here today, who'll be talking to us about his career and science 40 years on from frogs to man. Please welcome Professor Kenner. Well, uh, you've heard it all now, and all in two minutes, and now you've got to sit for another sort of 45 minutes or so. Uh, so anyway, uh, thank you very much for the invitation to, uh, to talk about uh, the last 40. Why have I called it 40 years on? Well, I'm a great fan of Alan Bennett, and those of you, he's more my vintage than a lot of the people in, in this audience, but he's a playwright, an actor, and he writes a sort of wonderful diary. The new 10 years of his diary has just been published, which is absolutely fabulous. Uh, I think he's known as a sort of uh, a bit of an old codger, which I guess I sort of slightly think of myself as. Um, so here we have uh, nine ages of man, which is a bit different to the seven ages of man, you know, as you like it. Uh, and uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about a tale of serendipity, of collaborations, uh, mistakes and good luck. And so I think we're going to start here, youth's father becomes a grown man's fervor. So the beginning, why the brain? Well, I think I got hooked on the brain uh, when I was about 15 with an edition of Scientific American that came out all about, this isn't the actual edition because I couldn't, I can't find it, although they have uh, it archived. But anyway, so Scientific American has a lot to answer for. <coughs> in getting me. And why medicine? Well, in fact, I didn't want to do medicine at all. Uh, I wanted to do neurophysiology. And I applied to university to do uh, physiology. And then a, a relative of mine said, you know you've got a distant cousin, uh, this chap who I've never met, Sidney Hilton. And he's a, he's a neurophysiologist. And he works here in North London at the MRC National Institute for Medical Research. Why don't you go and see him? 
So, I mean, this is 1963. Uh, so I went to see him. He's a lovely guy. He subsequently went on to be the head of physiology in the University of Birmingham. And we had a very nice chat. And he said, well, that's really good. But you want to do physiology and neurophysiology? Yeah, brain. He was interested in cardio, the brain effects on the influences on cardiovascular system. And then he suddenly said, but you know you'll never be a professor. So I said, what do you mean? So he said, well, all the professors in anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, pharmacology in the UK in the 1960s all had medical degrees. And they had gone off after they'd done their medical degrees and got stuck into laboratory science and given up the, the, uh, the clinical part. So it just shows that I was sort of had some academic pretensions. So I thought, well, that's no good. So I sort of dropped my application, or I had, had had some interviews by then, and just reapplied for whatever the UCAS form or whatever it is, was in those days for medicine. And fortunately, I got into this uh, medical school, Charing Cross Hospital Medical School, uh, in the, right in the centre of London, just near Trafalgar Square. Um, it was part of London University. In those days, there were 12 medical schools, most of them completely independent of any other sort of multi-faculty uh, college in the university. And uh, we, uh, it's, it's still there. It's very interesting. It closed in 1973. Uh, it then, in the days of the Labour Party, became a DOS house. And then Maggie Thatcher came, and it became the uh, largest police station in the Metropolitan Police. So I thought it sort of reflected the, the times uh, rather nicely. Um, however, things didn't all go terribly well. So uh, I, nearly didn't, I nearly sort of started and then uh, got chucked out. And this little story about the mouse that roared or the mouse that nearly soared. So this is a, uh, and some of you will know about this because you've been kind enough to, um, uh, to get students from the International Youth Science Fortnight, which was in its very early days in 1963. And I'm somewhere there. I can't quite work out where I am. But I was uh, there. Uh, and this was, a group, this was uh, people, students, uh, sixth formers and first year undergraduates from all around the world, about 30 or 40 countries, came to London for two weeks, immersion in science, going off on visits, having lectures, and, and, etc. So I'd done that, and I'd then come back as a sort of uh, coordinator the second year. And as a consequence of that, the group of us in London decided we'd form the London Science Club. Uh, and we met on reg regular times. Now, it turned out that in Bordeaux, there was a similar uh, science club for sixth formers and uh, undergraduates. And, uh, and they had built a few rockets. So they said, would we like a rocket? So I said, well, that's a good idea. Why don't we send a mouse up in a rocket? I mean, I did intend to sort of get some professional advice. But anyway, uh, much to my horror, I found that in 1965, uh, six months after I started medical school, uh, a student plans to send a mouse on a flight in a rocket is disquieting, says the Royal Society uh, of the French for Cruelty to Animals. It gets worse. Uh, young students working on the plan, including 19-year-old uh, Christopher Kennard, carrying across hospital, that's the very lot of good, uh, planned, and here, we will catch our mouse, says Mr. Kennard. <laughs> so enter an irate professor of physiology, a rather dour Scottish professor, who hauled me into his office and said, Kennard, get yourself out of this immediately, otherwise you will be, you know, you will be out of the medical school. So I somehow managed to extricate myself from that. 
uh, carried on with my studies a little bit longer, and then had a rather nasty episode when uh, my repub slightly republican tendencies uh, came to the fore. So I'd then become the editor of the Charing Cross <laughs> Hospital Gazette, and it was the 150th anniversary in 1968, and the Queen was coming to visit the hospital. So as part of the anniversary edition, I thought we'd have a, uh, a spread inside of the history, a chronological history of the hospital. Um, and, you know, I and a couple of other people, we proofread it, and there was one half of it was about the old hospital, the other half was about the new hospital, which I'll talk about in a little while. And I had here, put May 1968, Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II visits the hospital. Now, how many of you know what's... Is that all right? No. no? That's right. So, I get another telephone call from the Dean this time, <laughs> saying you can, and the idea was that we would present the Queen with a leather-bound copy of this, uh, and uh, he hold, uh, they come to my office immediately. It was about three or four days before the Queen was due to visit. And he said, have you proofread this? I said, of course I've proofread it. Uh, and he said, well, look here. So I looked there, and of course, yeah. I said, what's wrong with that? <laughs> and he said, it's Her Majesty. You can't possibly hand this. It'll be in the archives forever with a wrong designation of the Queen. So, uh, so he said, well, you've got to get a new uh, copy. Unfortunately, the printers were down in South End. So in my little Morris Minor, I trotted down to uh, the printers. Uh, and there are three copies. They're probably more valuable than the black, uh, Penny Black. But there are three copies that actually have her, royal, uh, uh, her Majesty. And there I am with the Queen giving her one of the three copies. Unfortunately, I don't know what's happened to the other two uh, uh, of this uh, precious document. Um, so, anyway, so we managed to survive medical school, and I got, did a BSc in anatomy and then got my medical degree. And then, interestingly, I had a short sojourn in Oxford. I became a senior house officer at the Radcliffe Infirmary, which, uh, as you know, is now the uh, what is it? The uh, humanities uh, uh, main building and general practice here, and uh, it looks slightly different from this. Uh, and it was a rotation, so I went from the Radcliffe Infirmary to the Churchill Hospital. And uh, I'm not sure which, which person is me here, but there's a Churchill Hospital, and these are the Nissen huts, which many of you will have never seen. But I actually, uh, in, the, in 1971, was living in a Nissen hut when I was on call, and the Nissen huts only disappeared, I think, a few years ago. Uh, and that was all because this was a, uh, an, uh, um, an army hospital uh, built during the Second World War. So what, so I'd done medicine. Uh, I still didn't want to do medicine, to be quite honest with you. I wanted to do pure science. And so uh, somebody said, well, you better get membership, which is the member of the Royal College of Physicians. So in those days, you could do it pretty quickly. And I started looking to see where I could do a PhD. And I got in touch with Giles Brindley. He's a very interesting uh, neurophysiologist at King's and the Institute of Psychiatry. Uh, and a uh, slightly bizarre guy who uh, um, did all sorts of peculiar experiments on himself. Uh, the one, the, the uh, and um, I better not go into the details. <laughs> there are ladies present, in, in, uh, and uh, and I and I once actually went to the, in the physiological society. It's fascinating. They have a um, a uh, traffic light system, so it's green at nine. You've got ten minutes. At nine minutes, the yellow light goes on, and at ten minutes, the red light goes on. 
And so Giles Brindley, I went to one of these meetings to give a paper. He was there and he uh, was giving his paper and he clearly hadn't got anywhere near uh, the end by the red light, red light flashing. You know, 12, 13 minutes, the, uh, the uh, uh, chairman comes over, taps him on the shoulder. And it was a huge lecture theatre. And this guy walked up the gangway, still talking, and his seat was in the middle of the top row, and he carried on talking, <laughs> got to the, his seat, another two minutes, and then stopped. So he was completely crazy. So fortunately, he didn't get the uh, he didn't get a studentship for me. Another guy was Roy Kahn, who was then at the Royal uh, Hospital, who became a, one of the leading uh, guys in Parkinson's disease. But in fact, where I ended up, interestingly, uh, serendipitously, was back where my uh, distant cousin had been at the MRC National Institute for Medical Research, working with this lovely guy called Mike Keating, who uh, a group of them had come down. With an, interestingly, they were interested in the development of the visual system. So the leader of the group was Mike Gaze. It's a bit like Lord Brain, who was a very distinguished neurologist. So he had the right uh, surname for it. And Mike was a medic who, like me, had sort of done his uh, qualified, done his first year of house jobs, and then decided to go into science. And he was a fantastic uh, supervisor. So I spent my time with him. And we worked on this beast which is best known then for being the, uh, the best method for testing for pregnancy, but it became a very useful tool in developmental neurobiology. Xenophus levis, the African clawed frog, to be found uh, particularly in South Africa. Uh, and the reason that it was so interesting was these were the very early days of neuroplasticity. And this is a, has to be a very plastic brain, because when Xenophus when is a tadpole, you can see its eyes are looking out laterally. And then as it, as it metamorphoses, you can see the eyes move forward and up, so that by the time it's fully grown, it's got a binocular field. So the question is, how does the brain, the visual system, actually co cope with this rapid change in the visual inputs, from no a monocular visual input to binocular visual input? Uh, and we were, you're able to get tadpoles, and you can just peel away the skin, and record from the optic tectum, where there's a direct uh, contralateral input to the optic tectum, the superior colliculus in, the, in primates. Uh, and here I am here in the lab. You can see it's pretty crude. Uh, we, there's the tadpole sitting in a little um, uh, conical uh, thing full of, of, of fluid with an electrode that goes into the tectum. And we recorded multi-units as we projected a uh, a stimulus, not on a screen in those days. You know, we're very primitive there. Where this is 75, uh, just basically an XY potter with a stick and a little black disc that went up and down, up and down, and goes across. And you pick up the activity, as you can see here, here uh, uh, activity in animals. And what we did was, one of the experiments we did was to rear these tadpoles in the light and then to rear them in the dark. So in the dark, they obviously have no visual input, and to see what happens. And if you record, you find that there's a direct input, but also there is an ipsilateral input, which presumably goes through a connection from the colliculus across to the other side. And here you can see the nice multi-receptive field, multi-unit receptive field in a light red, and you can see how uh, if they're red in the dark, it becomes very disrupted. So what we found here was that there was refined binocular connections are dependent on brain activity. 
And I think that had I been working, and those are the days of Hubel and Weasel, who were doing all this or similar work on the cat and Colin Blakemore in Cambridge, um, uh, doing similar things in, in, uh, in mammals. And I suspect if I'd been working on mammals, I might have stayed in science. But as it was, I thought, I can't see myself doing this for the next 30 years. And I, and I think one of the reasons why I've got such fantastic respect for basic scientists, as opposed to clinicians, I've got respect for them as well. But, <laughs> but, but I think that it's really tough to be stuck in a lab uh, and just generating uh, ideas for new research all the time. Whereas if you're a clinician, you see patients on a regular basis and they come along and they pose questions that you can then go and research. So they're a stimulus to your research, which I think is why I then went back into uh, clinical medicine to decide to train as a neurologist. And I moved uh, over to the east side of London, to the London Hospital. This is uh, it in 1740. Just the city of London is just over here. And this was a rubbish dump for the city of London, so really appropriately placed for a hospital. Um, and here it sort of uh, hadn't changed a great deal by 1986. And even when I went there as a neurology senior registrar in 78, it still pretty much was uh, the same, uh, perhaps a bit few more buildings behind. Uh, and whilst I was there, I took on an MRC uh, travelling fellowship to go to San Francisco to work with the doyen of clinical neuro-ophthalmology, because I thought, if I'm going to train in neurology, I might as well do the subspecialty that is involved in something that I know something about, i.e. vision. And so neuro-ophthalmology is clearly the thing. And Bill Hoyt had written the sort of uh, the seminal um, bible of neuro-ophthalmology. Uh, he's still alive in his uh, 90s. Uh, and had a great year there. And once a week, I would take the BART, uh, underground to go to Berkeley and work with this guy, Larry Stark, who was in fact a neurologist, still was an ophthalmologist, but he didn't like ophthalmologists, fortunately for me, he only liked neurologists. So all his ophthalmology fellows had absolute hell from him, whereas they, I had a great time. Uh, he, Larry Stark was one of these complete uh, polymaths. He was a neurologist, uh, and he was interested, he then got into uh, neurological control uh, systems, and he uh, uh, and I started doing experiments with him, but, uh, looking at eye head coordination in, uh, in patients with Parkinson's disease. So I think that's one of my first papers. So uh, that was a very good year. And uh, then in uh, 1981, I came back and was fortunate enough to get a consultant post, NHS consultant post, at the same hospital, the London Hospital. And this doesn't actually come out very well, but just shows that the, uh, the post office was pretty efficient in those days because it says, this says, to the optical neurologist, the London Hospital, London, UK. And the letter actually got to me. Uh, it certainly wouldn't in this day, from, the, from uh, the state. So then the question comes, if you're going to be a clinical researcher, what, do you choose, what sub, uh, area do you choose? Well, clearly, I've done a bit of eye movement recording, uh, um, and so I want to look more at eye movements. Uh, what disease was I, would, would be appropriate? Now, there are two ways you can look at this. You can say, I'm going to take a very obscure disease, uh, and I'm going to be the leading person in uh, understanding that dis disorder. The problem is that there'll be so few patients, you'll be lucky to get <coughs> adequate numbers. Or the alternative is to take a, number, a group of patients with, who are very frequent, and Parkinson's disease is one of them. And part of the reason was that just up the road, a mile and a half up the road from the London Hospital, is Hoxton Square. 
And this is where a certain gentleman called James Parkinson lived. He was a physician, geologist. He had the finest collection of uh, rocks and minerals, uh, stones in Europe. Uh, he, was a, he wrote, he's a pamphleteer, he's a very interesting guy. But he produced, he saw some of these patients. Nobody's sure he actually saw them. They say, I'm not sure it's not true, that he just saw them walking up and down outside his uh, house. But he wrote this very famous book, The Essay on the Shaking Palsy in 1817, which is a perfect description of patients with idiopathic Parkinson's disease. So, uh, how to get started? Uh, you need money to get started. You need a lab. You need some neurophysiological recording equipment, etc., uh, etc. Et and uh, they gave me a little, little pokey place up here in this little tower here. I could create a lab. And that's when I was very fortunate, and Sandos, which is a pharmaceutical company who don't exist now, has taken over, came to the rescue. They came along, a guy, one of their directors came along and said, would I take part in a multi-center trial of bromocryptine, which is then being introduced for Parkinson's disease, uh, and you know, clinical rating scales. And I said, no, this is rubbish. Clinical rating scales, absolute no nonsense. I can record eye movements and limb movements and give you a quantitative output in, re in relation to this. And somehow I persuaded him, and you know, talk about falling on your feet, he gave me all the equipment for a lab, an engineer, and a clinical fellow for three years. So that got, that was, got me going. And I think as an NHS consultant, it would have been really tough to get going had that bit of good fortune not occurred. So I started recording saccades, which uh, uh, most of you know are rapid conjugate eye movements. I look between my two fingers. I'm making saccadic eye movements, and you can record them. Um, this is the amplitude, this is the time when a target suddenly appears, so there's a latency, and you can measure the amplitude and peak velocity. And my first fellow was Adolfo Bronstein, that a number of you will know, who is a very distinguished uh, um, neurootologist, uh, got into the vestibular system at Charing Cross and Imperial College, and also at uh, UCL at Queen Square, and Mark Gibson, who was an Irish neurology trainee, and we looked at patients with idiopathic Parkinson's disease, looking at uh, these pro-saccades, reflective saccades. A target is on the center. It suddenly goes off. A peripheral target comes on, and the individuals are asked, move your eyes to the target. And we can measure the amplitude, the latency. I don't know what's happening there. Put that away. Um, my heart, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and then they move their eyes. And there was no difference between the age match controls and the, um, and the Parkinson's disease. Very disappointing. Now, this turned out to be around the time that MPTP came uh, onto the scene. And that was turned out to be a group of, a small handful of drug addicts in San Francisco and the Bay Area who turned up to neurologists in their, 20, uh, oh, in their late teens and 20s who, so the neurologist had idiopathic Parkinson's disease. We don't, you never see it like that. It's a disease of middle old age. So they thought there was something fishy here, a chap called uh, Lang, uh, and uh, he, he did, put his Sherlock Holmes uh, hat on, and he went off and discovered that uh, there was a, um, a chemist in Stanford, which is just down the road from San Francisco, who decided that if he had made some, um, uh, um, what was it? Uh, morphine-type derivative uh, for drug addicts that didn't actually comply, wasn't on the list of the FDA-banned drugs, 
he can make a fortune. So he went into, got the formulae from the pages, and, and uh, Lang found that they had been scissored out. He cooked it, but he cooked it wrong, and he overcooked it, and he produced this substance called MPTP, which is a specific neurotoxin for dopaminergic neurons. So these young individuals <coughs> thought they were getting a, a high. They got a low because they developed Parkinson's disease. And uh, John Hodson, who was a neurologist in Stanford, uh, did some eye movement work recording in these individuals. First of all, in, in those individuals who had been taken off their, uh, their dopamine, because the standard treatment in those days, was, and still is, is L-DOPA for treating patients with Parkinson's disease. And you can see before they get, if they're taken off all their drugs, their saccades are very hypermetric. There's a series of steps. Then you give them L-DOPA, and you can see that they're now making normal saccades. Uh, this suggests, therefore, that dopamine is involved in the control of eye movements. And at the same time, there was a Japanese young uh, uh, neurophysiologist over in NIH who was doing some beautiful work recording from different parts of the pathway that goes from the frontal eye field into the chordate nucleus, then into the sub, uh, substantia nigra path reticulata, and then down into the superior colliculus and into the brainstem. And he found that there was a very nice pathway that was controlling, particularly in relation to um, what was called the memory-guided saccade paradigm. So just so you know, the target comes on, a peripheral target flashes on briefly, you have to remember where it is, then after a delay, the central one goes off, you move, have to then move your eyes to the remembered location. So you have to remember the location, you have to stop yourself making a saccade to the target when it suddenly appears, and wait for the, the central target to go off. Uh, and this is what uh, I then applied to patients with Parkinson's disease and found that, lo and behold, there is in fact a deficit when you do this paradigm in these Parkinsonian patients compared with age match controls. And this was with uh, Trevor Crawford, who is now a professor in uh, Leicester. Um, so I carried on doing lots and lots of uh, 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 experiments with a number of research fellows who came to the lab uh, in Parkinson's disease, also in motor neurone disease, and in Huntington's disease. And I was very fortunate while I was at the London. One of my colleagues uh, had a patient who came to see him, a young uh, chap in his late 30s, who had idiopathic Parkinson's disease, very unusual. Turned out that he was a psychologist, and his interest was in language. And he was a very distinguished uh, psychologist at the University of um, Hertfordshire, uh, Leslie Henderson. And uh, Mike Swash, who was a neurologist there, said, well, you know, my colleague, Chris Kennard, is very interested in this. Why don't you go and talk to him? So he came to talk to me. And because he had the disease and he heard what I was doing, he decided that he'd drop all his neurolinguistics and he'd become a, a neurophysiologist and get interested in ocular motor and somatomotor control in Parkinson's disease. And he was a brilliant psychologist and we worked together for about 15, 20 years. So again, collaboration is crucially important in developing one's career uh, and you need the good luck, as that was, to come in contact with somebody uh, as, uh, as bright as he was. Uh, tragically, he, he had his Parkinson's disease, as you can see, and eventually died from it at a relatively young age. So it's all very well being interested in the visual system and uh, being interested in eye movements, but I didn't want to be just stuck on the efferent side. I wanted to be involved in the afferent side. Uh, so what goes into the visual system 
as well as the output that controls the uh, eye movements. So when I'd been with Bill Hoyt, and this will surprise most of you, you, couldn't, you didn't have computers and you didn't have all your uh, um, uh, the contents of journals coming to you every day, every week, uh, every month. What you had every week was this, current contents, life sciences. And in this was printed the, uh, the front page, the frontispiece of all the journals. And so Bill Hoyt would go through this diligently and he'd pick out all the articles that were relevant to you know, clinician being involved in neuro-ophthalmology and interested in vision and eye movements and everything. And at the back, there would be the addresses of, uh, of all the lead authors, and he would get his secretary to send a reprint request to, uh, to them. And he had this amazing, uh, had about 15,000 or 20,000 reprints, which, he, which when we phoned him up uh, and said, we've got a patient with this, he'd come in next morning with all the relevant papers. So anyway, he, uh, that's, what he, that's what he did first thing in the morning, came in with all his papers, and one day he came in with this paper, <coughs> Spatial Characteristics of Mo Movement Detection Mechanisms in Human Vision, by a chap called Keith Ruddock, who was uh, at Imperial College. And so Bill said, well, you're a clever guy, you've got a PhD, you understand this, come in you know, a couple of weeks down and tell me what it's all about. Well, it was complete visual psychophysics. I hadn't a clue what it was about. So, but what I did do, I went, I think I admitted to him, I don't know what it's about, but actually uh, I made a note that when I get back to London, I'll get, look up this guy, because it might be that he's, there's some potential collaborations that we can do. And fortunately, he was a lovely guy, a Welshman, uh, who tragically was killed just as we were about to set up a joint unit in the road traffic accident. Uh, but anyway, uh, this was the time of uh, the discovery or the naming of blind sight. Uh, this is an ability of individuals with blindness to detect and respond to visual stimuli despite lacking uh, awareness of having seen anything. Uh, and uh, Mike Sanders, who was an ophthalmologist, and John Marshall uh, and Larry Weisshans, who was a head of uh, psychology here, wrote this paper. Uh, and describing this. So a patient, for example, who has damage to their visual cortex on one side, can't see on the, anything on the opposite side. You flash targets up. Uh, they say, I don't see anything. But you say, now just say uh, when it comes on or which location it is. And they can do better than chance. So they have unconscious awareness of the stimuli. Uh, and we, I thought it would be interesting to sort of see uh, that in a group of patients. So we had a group of about 25 uh, patients and we found that five of them had some evidence of not really, I didn't think, blind sight, but residual vision. They had some awareness that something had happened, but they couldn't tell you where it was, but they still responded better than a, a chance. So that set forth a really prolonged collaboration uh, between his group and, uh, and my group. Uh, and at the same time, we thought it would be interesting to try and see whether there was evidence for functional specialization in the human brain. Now, there was, uh, Samir Zeki is a very uh, um, fine neurophysiologist at University College, still going strong, um, who had been, Huber and Weasel have been recording in cats, uh, Samir have been recording in non-human primates, and he found that there are a number of different areas outside the primary visual cortex that seem to be concerned with different attributes of vision. So you need, for uh, normal vision, you need color, form, motion, depth, and so on. And he found that there's fair to be different areas that were responsible for these different attributes. 
But there was no evidence of this in man. So uh, Samir, uh, Christian Lueck, who was a, a research fellow with me, uh, and uh, Richard Prokogiak, who was the professor of neurology at the Hammersmith Hospital, where they had a PET scanner. So this is before MRI was uh, available. So we would give injections of radioactive tracer and uh, um, uh, look at the brain scans, and this would be a reflection on neuronal activity. So if we ask the subject, normal subject, to look at a pattern like this, multiple colors and shapes, you can see that if you look down on the brain, you activate your primary visual cortex and your extra stripe visual cortex around that. But then if you just do ask the subject to, and, and compare it with, sorry, you can compare it with their eyes closed, you can see that there's activity just here. The rest of the activity cancels itself out. Then you do it and just look at the same uh, spatial pattern but, and same illumination, but no color. And now what you see is that there, this has canceled itself out, but there are now two areas on either side of the midline, on the ventral part of the occipital lobe, which appear to be areas that are concerned primarily with color. And so we call that visual area four, V4. Then, if you want to show that there is evidence of, of functional specialization, you have to show that some other visual attribute is located somewhere else. So in the same subject, we asked them to look at some dots, and then we gave them a bit of motion, random motion, and then we found that indeed there was a completely different area here on the uh, lateral surface of the brain. Remember, the color area was on the inferior surface of the brain, which is visual, which we termed visual area 5, V5, or MT in the American system. So now you've got evidence of color here, motion here, there is now a face area and object areas, and many, many areas. And in fact, there are probably at least 30 different areas. From, you know, anybody who's interested in uh, pursuing a career in vision has got plenty of centers to sort out what they actually are doing. And of course, there are a huge amount of interactions. And we always think, what's interesting is that we always think of um, the visual system and other systems as being hierarchical. So we start here in the retinal ganglion cells, the LGN primary cortex, and go all the way up here to where there perhaps be a neuron that was you know, the famous grandmother cell. But in fact, there's a huge amount of, of uh, this is uh, anterograde pathways, but retrograde pathways. And there's more pathways, more axons that go back to the lateral geniculate nucleus than there are going forward into the primary visual cortex. Now, if you want to sort of get groups together, and I think uh, one of the things I heard Irene's excellent talk uh, about her vision for the future, you want to bring people together, I can tell you, food is what it's all about. <laughs> so, um, with Samir Zeki and Keith Ruddock and uh, Ian MacDonald, who was the, one of the senior professors of neurology at the National Hospital for, Neuro uh, for Neurology and Neurosurgery at Queen's Square, uh, who was very interested, he's a really interested in multiple sclerosis and therefore optic neuritis. And although I'm one of, of my generation, I'm one of the very rare birds who never set foot in Queen's Square. Just about every other neurologist would, uh, did part of their training there. But Ian was always very supportive of me, and I could always go and have a chat with him about my future and what I wanted to do. But anyway, I got the three of them and myself to set up the Neuroophthalmology Club. And we uh, met every quarter uh, one of the uh, hospitals and invited uh, various guest speakers from London and outside London to talk about different aspects of vision, uh, basic and, uh, and clinical. And if you want to have something like that, you know, an early evening thing, you need to have, be able to provide some food. 
Now, if you're interested in neuro-ophthalmology, it isn't one of those sort of areas that pharmaceutical companies are really sort of hot on. You know, they're interested in multiple sclerosis, neurodegeneration, etc. Et but at that time, there was um, the new drugs uh, coming out for, for migraine. Uh, the, um, uh, I can't even think what they are now. Anyway, so uh, I got in touch with, uh, with uh, Glaxo, who were producing one of these uh, drugs, and said, look, we're getting a whole load of ophthalmologists and neurologists, particularly we're interested in getting at neurologists, and how about giving us some money for this? And I was just very lucky that I found an amazing caterer who provided the most exquisite food at a reasonable cost. And so rapidly, it got around London that if you wanted a good meal and you were a student <laughs> or a postgraduate, you would come to the Neuroophthalmology Club. And that lasted for about uh, six or seven years before the money dried up. And needless to say, so did the club. <laughs> anyway, it was a good, good, good way of doing it. Um, so, uh, so 10 years after I had become a consultant at the London, I... Um, had been in contact, one of my mentors was, sorry, it was this guy, Frank Clifford Rose, who was a senior uh, neurologist at, um, if I go back, at Charing Cross Hospital. So this is where it moved from the centre of London to Fulham, Fulham Palace Road, and this was a very fine uh, hospital in those days. It's looking a bit forlorn these days. Um, and he was a senior neurologist, and he had been uh, sort of always uh, a, me a mentor for me and uh, giving suggestions. And he had been saying for a long time that he was, when he retired, he was going to, they were going to make sure that his post became a, the first chair of clinical neurology at Charing Cross and Westminster Medical School. And I would bump into him at various meetings every so often. He said, yeah, I said, what's happening about the chair? Yeah, I was quite interested. Uh, fortunately, I, I had a reasonable portfolio of research, which in those days, you know, it was very unusual as an NHS consultant to be able to get a whole load of research that got you into a position where you could apply for a chair. It would be impossible in this day and age, unfortunately. But in those days, uh, you know, I sort of didn't do a few clinics and then I suddenly go and do a big splurge of clinics and get through the patients, get the waiting list down. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so uh, I hadn't seen him for a few months. And I, I, to this day, I don't know, I suddenly thought, I'm gonna phone up and find out uh, from the secretary of the medical school when the chair's gonna be advertised. So I phoned up and I spoke to the assistant secretary of the medical school and I said, look, I'm, I gathered from Dr. Clifford Rose uh, that the uh, chair in clinical neurology is going to be advertised. She said, it's been advertised. And I said, but I've been looking at the BMJ academic appointments every week without fail. It can't have been. Oh no, we didn't put it there. So I said, well, where did you put it? In nature and in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine and, uh, and the Lancet, all the places you don't look if you're interested in academic appointments. And that was because of the professor of uh, medicine, this lovely, lovely guy who was slightly crazy, uh, Abe Gus, he was a spiritual physiologist. And he was, it was in his department and he said, I want the best uh, and I'm going to advertise, I'm not going to advertise in the BMJ. The closing date was 48 hours after I'd made that phone call. So I managed to get uh, the application in, in time, and was very lucky that I got the chair. And so I thought it was time to be a little bit therapeutic. I'd been looking at sort of physiology. Uh, was there anything you could actually do for patients? Uh, and I must say, I think on the whole, I've had a very sort of good career 
without a huge benefit to patients other than the fact that they've enabled me to write lots of papers. <laughs> but anyway, I thought that with uh, Alice Pan back in, who is now a uh, consultant neurologist at Charing Cross, we would look to see whether we could use eye movements to train patients with hem homonymous hemianopia. Again, homonymous hemianopia is when you damage the visual cortex on one side, you can't see on the contralateral side. And so she went around with this rather crude equipment doing visual, uh, visual search tasks so the subjects are seeing lots and lots of screens. All the targets are the same, but one would be at a slight uh, uh, different angle or shape or size, and the subject had to press a button when they saw it. Uh, and what she found was that indeed, there's a pre-training, the mean response time after the training period, it becomes, it reduces somewhat. And this is really one of the only treatments that you can use for these patients. I'm not convinced that it does a huge amount of good, but it's better than that. And now, of course, with patients who have got computers at their, in their home, they can do it at home. And at least it's feel, they feel that they're doing something positive about trying to improve. I think it doesn't have any effect on the size of the visual deficit, but I think it trains them to move their eyes into their blind field more than they would otherwise do. So um, then, we, uh, then one of the things that I think if you're interested in functional localization uh, or the localization of function, uh, which we can of course do very, very nicely now, up to a point, says he, looking at Ari, with uh, MRI and functional MRI. But one of the ways that you can, if you like, uh, add proof to what you find with functional MRI is to take patients with very, very small focal lesions that damage specific parts of the brain. Uh, and this has proved to be a very, very uh, useful tool. Uh, and one of the things that we were particularly interested in was this area called the supplementary eye field. The main eye field in the frontal lobe is called the frontal eye field here. Uh, and it really wasn't clear what it was uh, involved with. We knew from uh, non-human primate studies that it had lots of uh, connections involved with saccadic eye movements. And it seemed to be involved in generating internally generated uh, eye movements as opposed to reflexive uh, type of eye movements and perhaps saccadic sequences. So this is where Masood Hussain, whom all of you will now know, uh, a very senior professor jointly between NDCN and Experimental, Experimental Psychology. Uh, he came and spent 10 years in my, uh, with me uh, and he found this patient uh, who had a tiny little lesion here in the region of the supplementary eye field. Uh, and you can see beautiful uh, um, high-powered um, structural MR showing the lesion and with um, functional magnetic resonance imaging you can see there that there's activity on the opposite supplementary eye field but none on the side of the, uh, of the lesion. And so we did lots, he was a very nice patient, he would come back whenever we wanted to come to the lab, undertake lots and lots of studies and we did massive studies on him trying to understand what was the deficit that he had that therefore you could attribute to the, fun uh, the function of the supplementary eye field. And since he had it on one side, one of the supplementary eye fields was, wor was working, you could compare one side with the other. And you could we found that, in fact, I'm not going to go into detail of these experiments, it take too long, but we found that a change of a planned path, so where he's looking at a, at a target, at a fixation point, an arrow points in one direction, it takes about 200 milliseconds to generate your saccade. Uh, during that time, suddenly, it shows uh, the same direction or the opposite direction, and you've got to change the, the direction of your saccade, if you like, before you've actually it start, uh, your eyes start moving 
uh, if it moves in the opposite direction. And we found that this was uh, abnormal in this guy with a lesion of his supplementary eye field. We then did go on to do uh, some FMR study with Pereshkev Nejad, who was a very bright uh, young uh, um, neurology uh, trainee, did a PhD with me, uh, and we did a change of plan paradigm in situ in the, in the scanner, recording eye movements in the, in, the, uh, in the scanner, and we found evidence that there was a dissociation between the supplementary uh, motor area and the supplementary eye field, and there were two areas. One appeared to be more involved in free choice, another one in resolving conflict. So, it's all very well recording eye movements in the lab, uh, and very relatively simple. I was always interested in seeing whether you could record eye movements in, in, the, in the, if you like, the real world. Um, uh, and uh, so one of the things that we did was to look at patients with neglect. Uh, and here you can see a patient with neglect, and you can see that he's completely ignoring the left side of the newspaper. He's only interested in everything going on the right side. And this is because he's got a lesion in his right inferior parietal lobe, which gives rise to this phenomenon of unilateral uh, hemineglect. And it was always thought that this was a, due to a deficit in the representation of left space. But we wonder whether there was more to it than that. Uh, and Sabira Manon, who uh, had worked with Keith Rubick, in fact, and came and worked in my lab, uh, we decided to look and see whether we could do the visual search task uh, in these patients with neglect. And here's a visual search task. You can see there are lots of T's, which they had to identify, and these L's in different orientations, so they had to ignore those. And every time they came to a T that they thought was a new T, that they hadn't seen before, they had to press a button. Uh, and you can see, these are all the fixations, so you can see again that the, she, uh, the patient ignores everything on this side. And now you can see that this is the number of times they re-click. So you can see they often go back to the same T and they've got no awareness that they've actually been there before. So their spatial working memory seems to be impaired. And you can see here are the re-clicks in the patients compared with uh, age-matched normal controls. And so this suggested that in patients with visual spatial neglect, one of the components is an impairment in spatial working memory. And uh, this was done also with Masood, and he went on to do some beautiful studies. Uh, and in fact, it appears that there are a number of different uh, uh, deficits, spatial deficits and non-spatial deficits, in patients with visual-spatial neglect, which explains why they slightly differ from one another when you examine them and when you test them. Uh, and it's not a unified entity. We talk about visual-spatial neglect as if everybody has the same disorder. But in fact, it's not that. It's a syndrome, and different patients will have different combinations of these spatial and non-spatial uh, deficits. So when you, uh, uh, when you look at anything, you have the highest security around your fovea here, where you have the highest concentration of cones. So the reason that we move our eyes all the time is that we're moving to look at different uh, areas with our highest spatial uh, vision in that sort of three or four uh, degree area. And you can see, really, when you look at something, uh, everything is blurred out. But of course, we're not aware of that. Um, and so if you look at a visual scene like this, what we're actually doing is every uh, three times a second we're looking there, then we might move our eyes to here, fixate there, then we might move here, then we might move here, and so on. 
until we, the brain synthesizes all this into a visual percept such as this. Okay, one of my favorite paintings. Get it in somehow. So we make approximately three refixations every second. And this is called the grand illusion of complete perception. So that's what we're all doing now. You know, we're not aware that all the time, all of you are making three or four saccades per second uh, and just refixating around probably what's, hopefully, <laughs> what's on the, on the screen. <laughs> so um, a, a, a Russian uh, psychologist called Yarvas in the 1950s started doing some experiments looking at what was called visual search or scan paths. So he asked uh, subjects to, normal subjects to look at a, uh, an image such as this and he'd ask them different questions. And he'd record the eye movements in a relatively crude way. And these are the saccades and the blotches are fixation. So he'd ask them different questions. So here, for example, give me the ages of the, patient, of the people. So of course, they're looking at the faces because that gives you the best clue about the ages. Uh, he asked them about, uh, um, estimate the uh, material, are they rich or poor? So of course, they don't look at the faces. They look around to see what the various goods and shuttles uh, in, the, uh, in, in the room. Uh, so it appears that there is some top-down influence on where we move our eyes. And, but there's a big controversy, whether it is a top-down or a bottom-up as to where we move our eyes and we look at a new visual scene that controls the part of our eyes. So the bottom-up would be various low-level cues such as edges, shaving, shading, contrast, boundaries, etc., whereas top-down would be all dependent on our understanding of the instruction or understanding of the scene. So I thought it would be interesting to see whether uh, we could use certain neurological patients to test this. And there is a group of patients who have what is called visual agnosia. So they have damaged their visual system, and it's best to think of it as a normal percept, so they can see it completely normally, but it's completely stripped of its meaning. So you can show them um, a, um, a pepper pot, and they have no idea what it is. But they can describe it in great detail, because they can see it, but they can't associate it with, uh, with a name. So, so we had two patients who had this uh, phenomenon, and we recorded their eye movements when they looked at real-life scenes. And here you can see the, um, uh, the red is the fixation point from a, uh, a patient, and the bl uh, blue blobs are from six normal controls. Uh, and you can see that they're pretty much similar in the first uh, second or couple of seconds. And then we did various mathematical computations on this. and so. We have two possibilities. If it's a top-down control that determines where you are, then the fixations should differ to the normal controls because they have no awareness of what they're actually looking at. On the other hand, if it's bottom-up, then they should be similar to the controls. And you can see here, in fact, in the first few fixations they make, these are the number of fixations, they are identical. So clearly there is a bottom-up control at the beginning when you look at a visual scene. And then after that, they, disappear, they, they uh, diverge from an age-matched control, and you can see that, they, uh, that therefore it appears that we use our low-level bottom-up first of all, and then we switch. When we've got some information about the visual scene, we use top-down information to determine where we're going to look. So, 2006, I'm sitting in my office at Charing Cross Hospital, and I get a telephone call, it's a bit late. Uh, from the sec then secretary of the um, medical school, uh, a chap called Rob Buckle, who I had met before when he had worked at the Medical Research Council and I'd been a member of the Neuroscience and Mental Health Board. 
And he said, did you see the advert for the, uh, the head of the, uh, the chair of the NRC Neuroscience and Mental Health Board? And I said, no. He said, well, I just thought you might be interested in this. Uh, and because uh, uh, you've been on the board um, in the past, I was no longer on the board. Uh, so fortunately, I, uh, and you know, it was very fortunate because uh, as it turned out, the advertisement, I looked up the, went home, looked up the advertisement. I wasn't going out that evening. The, the deadline for the application was midnight. Uh, and I kid you not. Uh, so I put in an application, fortunately it wasn't too long, and after various interviews, etc., I had a very, whoops, I had a very enjoyable uh, six years as chair of the MRC Neuroscience and Mental Health Board. So again, you know, all these coincidences and various, uh, uh, you know, I get there by the skin of my teeth, I think is the answer. Um, so, serendipity and a chance remark. So this occurred with uh, Pereshkev Najev. We were sitting in the clinic together and we had a 52-year-old man who came in. He had a uh, paraneoplastic, so this is a sort of immunologically manifested cerebellar degeneration because he, due to uh, Hodgkin's disease, a type of lymphoma. And he had, like that previous guy with a, a story about the cannabis, uh, with downbeat nystagmus. So his eyes kept on going down, um, sort of rapidly going down, then drifting up, down. And that's, this is effectively what he was seeing when he was looking at a, a visual acuity chart. Uh, he, we tried all sorts of drugs on him. There are many, many different drugs that have been used. You can never tell which one, if any, are going to be valuable. And this patient found none of them were any value. His life was destroyed because of this, uh, and he was desperate. So I just happened to say to Pereshkev that I, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, I remember seeing an abstract in some book or some uh, conference proceedings about somebody who'd stuck a magnet in the orbit to sort of uh, uh, to stop nystagmus. And um, and I wonder whether we could do that. Now, you know, I, I was a busy guy by those days, uh, and Pereshkev suddenly thought, hmm, interesting. So this was, uh, this was the chap who wrote the original uh, paper uh, in rabbits. He was looking at forced tension uh, gaps in the eye movements of rabbits. Uh, Dr. Bickas, who's still around, uh, an ophthalmologist in Sao Paulo. Uh, and uh, Pereshkov and I thought, well, let's see if we could, you know, is it really possible? Well, Pereshkov, actually not me. I thought this is too wacky. And in fact, I thought, actually, I wish I never said anything about it because it, I thought this could easily, is a me method of destroying a reputation. Uh, but anyway, Pereshkov stuck with it and he, uh, he thought, well, you know, perhaps we could have uh, a magnet, two magnets that uh, sit in the base of the orbit one attached to the eye, one attached to the floor of the orbit, and that would anchor the eyes, but not be sufficiently strong to stop you moving your eyes when you wanted to make a sudden saccade. Uh, he found Quentin Pankhurst, who was the director of the Institute of Biomedical Engineering at UC, who is a world expert on biologically compatible magnets. And we had a variety of magnets of different strengths. We developed an apparatus which allows us to put a magnet on the, on the eye in a, on a contact lens so that it attached to find out what strength you would need of a magnet to be able to stabilize the eye in the primary position, which is looking straight ahead. We found a, an ophthalmic surgeon, Jeff Rose at Moorfield, who we got interested, who was a leading uh, orbital surgeon. 
And blow me if after about three or four years we didn't put the first one into this guy who was still desperate. And there you can see x-rays of his skull. You can see the lower part fixed to the orbit and the upper part here, you can see it better here, which is attached to the inferior rectus uh, tendon on the, uh, on the eyeball. There's a rather nice reconstruction of it. And did it work? Well, that's what he was seeing before. And that's, you can see, he's still got some oscillopsia, but it's much reduced. And if you measure it, of course, you can see there it is before in black, and there it is after. Uh, and these are various other ways of, of uh, showing it. His visual acuity, did it have any benefit to him? But his visual acuity improved from 6 over 9 bilaterally to 6 over 5 and 6 over 6 on the right. And he was... He had a bit of double vision as a result of this, which had to be corrected, and then he demanded that we did it in the other eye, because they wanted to put it in both eyes simultaneously. And I said, no, 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 let's do it on one, first of all, and make sure it's all right. Uh, and anyway, so he, he is uh, very much happier, uh, the patient, and um, we got money from NIHR, and there is now a clinical trial underway to uh, try and see whether this is a, a useful technique for patients who are non-responsive to any pharmacological uh, treatment for the condition. Just a word of advice, never throw any old uh, data away. Uh, 30 years after uh, I left Mill Hill and Xenopus, uh, a paper comes out with Simon Grant, who's followed me in the, in the lab, uh, I think 30 years later, that's right, uh, on the, what he found and one, the data that I had had, but never published. So then, uh, eight years ago, it's a move even further west to Oxford and to the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences, which I have to say has been really one of the most enjoyable times of my whole career, or the most. But we came back to blindsight with Holly Bridge, and we had an interesting patient who had got damage to his uh, uh, primary visual cortex. He had some blindsight, and we did some very nice fMR studies to show that part of the reason that these patients have blindsight uh, is that they have activation in that mo motion area which has a direct input without going through the primary visual cortex. So, uh, and a need to be even more therapeutic. So one of the great things about Oxford is that we have this fantastic MSc in neuroscience and if you're lucky enough to get one of the students who are on that to do a four-month four project, uh, as I'm sure some of you would have done that, uh, you get a huge amount out, and Graham Van Reed uh, came along. He had had some visual uh, training before, and he was interested in simulating computer-wise prosthetic vision. And with Stephen Hicks, who was working in the lab then, uh, they started to work together. Uh, and one of the things that uh, one has to realize is that even in patients who are registered blind, they're not, they have, it's not that they have no vision at all, it's that they have grossly impaired vision. So they, almost 90% of them have some residual, residual vision, which is amenable to augmentation. So as a result of this work with Joran, could we develop a novel device? Uh, and it would be a visual aid for the blind. We call smart specs, transparent, lightweight, inexpensive, portable, uh, etc. And this is one of the first um, prototypes and the idea was that depth would be translated into brightness. So as objects got closer, they would become brighter. So there's something in the distance, and there's somebody walking across, and you can see that it becomes bright. This is very, very crude. It's much more sophisticated now. Um, and 
various studies to show that if, they, if subjects, uh, patients with grossly impaired vision, usually as a result of age-related macular degeneration or retinitis pigmentosa, that they do better at, uh, in an obstacle avoidance task. This is a more sophisticated version of the, uh, with, um, and uh, about three months ago, Oxite was a, a spin-out company that became live, uh, and they're going to start producing uh, these glasses, hopefully sometime later next year, uh, and we'll see whether this uh, becomes a really useful tool or useful augmentation for many, many patients who have blindness. And remember that these are patients who on the whole, spend all their time at home because they can't navigate. We're not going to allow, this isn't going to get them to read or anything, but it might allow them to get outside their home and navigate sufficiently well, avoid bumping into things, to be able to like, make their life more interesting and more, more fulfilled. And then lastly, uh, can we, coming back to saccades, uh, we've always been involved in looking for saccadic biomarkers, and uh, Kristalina, uh, as you know, has been very much uh, involved in this in particularly what's called a saccadometer. And this is just a nice picture showing a patient with it wearing this. And it records the eye movement, so at the same time it has a number of lasers on it which are projected onto a screen. And what's really nice is that you don't have to take a patient into a laboratory. If you've got a blank wall in the outpatient clinic, you can record their eye movements very, very quickly and, they, uh, um, and then transcribe it all later. And Crystalina has been involved in the uh, discovery uh, the Oxford Parkinson's disease uh, discovery study, a large prospective cohort recording over 500 patients. And this is just a bit of the early data, looking at saccadic latencies and error rates uh, and seeing whether uh, we can find a useful biomarker that will look at the development of progression of the disease and, of course, the effect, the benefit, if any, of different drugs that can be used to monitor drugs. So where I hope... Uh, I hope I haven't gone too much on that. Um, so from youth, far becomes a grown man's fervor to, I'm not sure about this, old age, uh, I start actually measured weight. Actually, I think I, I decided that I didn't like this uh, nine, there seems to be nine ages of man. Uh, as you like it, has seven ages of man. And I think I'm sort of probably shifting into the sixth age, into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose, pouch on side, definitely. His youthful hose well saved a world too wide for his shrank shank and his big manly voice turning again towards childish treble pipes and whistles in his sound. Not sure I piped up to that yet, but hopefully. <laughs> uh, all right. uh, none of this would be possible without support. And of course, I've been very lucky. I got the program grants from the Wellcome Trust and from a number of other organizations <clears throat> over the years, which have enabled me to run a lab. Uh, and these are all the people or many others who I've been involved with, a huge big thank you to all of them, because of course, without them, none of this would have happened. Uh, you can't do it on your own, but those days are gone. And I think time to go, a night to remember. <laughs>